Welcome to Just Quietly, a podcast where Senator Amanda Stoker has a laugh with friends and colleagues, cuts through the bull, and explores the issues of the day. Let's get to the bottom of it all. Hello and welcome to Just Quietly. I'm Amanda Stoker and I'm joined today by my good friend, Andrew Hasty, the member for Canning. Hi, Andrew. How are you? I'm very well, Amanda. It's great to be with you and your listeners. It's a little bit of a funny sitting week, isn't it, down here in Canberra, but without many people in the building. It's very quiet and a little bit isolating, actually. I'm, yeah, I kind of hear that, but uh, it's also a good opportunity for us to be working through some of the really interesting policy problems of this time. Exactly. Um, The solitude has given space for thought and it's important to work through some of the policy issues uh, that we work together on in the PJCIS. Yeah, actually, I've spent a lot of this week thinking about um, those kinds of problems. Um, Before we talk about some of the policy stuff, what led you to politics? Why are you here? I love my country. And I want to preserve the good things about it and I want to reform the bad things about it. And my belief is that the public square is the place to do that in our parliament. And so for quite a while I've, I've had my eye on running for public office and the opportunity presented in 2015 and I took it and here I am. It's really interesting that so many people are quite disparaging politicians because my experience of a lot of the people in this building is that they are genuinely motivated by the desire to serve they genuinely want to make this country better and you're a great example of that well thank you yes I I do want to make this country better and I see my role as a parliamentarian as someone who has to carry the fire for our generation and hand it off to the next so um, political life can be quite short and I feel the weight of that I want to make a difference and so every day you've got to make it count. That's what I try to do. Yeah, there's um, something similar in my philosophy in that I don't know how long or how short my opportunity to contribute here will be but in a way that's an opportunity um, to make sure that you don't squib the chances that we get here. It's a call to courage. It's a call to do what matters um, even if that might not fit with one's personal ambitions. That's right. I think there's got to always be a level of discomfort in advocacy. Um, And so the minute I stop taking calculated risks, um, I think I'll feel like I've lost the edge and it's it's time to move on. Plenty of discomfort in this job. Lots Um, of discomfort. (laughs) Let's talk about something else. Um, The experience we've had as Australians going through COVID-19 has been uh, uncomfortable too. Yes. And um, whether we think about that in terms of um, people experiencing disruptions to their work, Mm -hmm. um, people who are facing uncertainty in their businesses, or whether it's people who are looking to um, Australia's role and its place in the world, it has, I think, opened our eyes to a lot of vulnerabilities as well as a lot of opportunities. And you and I are both interested in Australia's sovereignty and um, how we maximise our ability to um, act boldly in Australia's interests. 
Um, what do you think COVID-19 has shown us about the need for us to protect our sovereignty? That's a really good question. I, one of the first things I'd say is that COVID-19 has reaffirmed the family as the building block of Australian society. During the lockdown, we've seen businesses, schools um, and civil society close. Uh, but we've retreated to our, our family home or apartment or wherever it is. And so that's where we've sought sanctuary and comfort during this time. So uh, that's one big positive, um, getting to know my kids, um, their habits, which um, I often miss because I'm travelling so much. Mm. That's been great, and I'm sure a lot of Australians out there feel the same way. Um, but on a national level, um, it has reopened questions about sovereignty. What does that mean? Um, sovereignty, I think, is strategic, freedom of action, the ability for us to pursue our own interests on the global stage, um, but also economic sovereignty. And um, I think it does ask questions about, it does, it does raise questions rather about our resilience um, through supply chains, for example. Um, we're a trading nation, we've always been a trading nation. We've seen over the last 30 years the decline of our manufacturing industry. And so the sourcing of medical PPE, I think, is um, a good entry point into a discussion about how dependent we are on other countries for the critical, essential things that we need in our daily lives. We're a free trading nation and we don't want to become protectionists. No, we don't. That's, that's not in our interests. Um, it just makes everything more expensive for Australians and um, makes us less efficient, really. But at the same time, there's some things we can't do without. And the way that Australian manufacturers have been able to adapt so quickly to the need to produce PPE, uh, that's um, protective equipment um, for, for those who don't <laughs> know what I'm talking about, <laughs> um, that we're able to adapt to that so quickly shows a level of flexibility yes. in Australian businesses and manufacturing. Um, and it suggests that if we just turn our minds a little bit more to um, – the strategic thinking and planning about what are those essential things that we must be able to produce here, we can place ourselves in a position where we are much better able to deal with the uncertain um, well into the future. That's right. I think one of the risks uh, long term, if we become completely dependent for those critical supplies on other nations, and some of those nations aren't democratic, uh, we make ourselves vulnerable to supply chain warfare or economic coercion. And so one of the things I think we should consider doing is a review of our supply chain and working out those things which we absolutely need to be self-reliant on, um, perhaps those things which we don't want to be dependent on authoritarian regimes for, and then those things which we're happy for global supply chains to continue to provide us. Because there really are those three categories of items. Um, we can't produce everything here. No, we can't. And frankly, do we want Australians making toasters? Um, no, we, we may not be <laughs> using our skills as best as we possibly no. could. And, and, and we have comparative advantages as a country um, and we need to make the most of those. So yeah. I think we could be an energy superpower, for example. Um, but we shouldn't go chasing after the wind in terms of um, producing things that someone else can do more efficiently and we can enter into a trade relationship with for. When we think about what's essential for us to... Um, survive in a difficult circumstance. Um, most mums and dads would think about food and water and, and all of that stuff is necessary. Um, but 
this COVID-19 experience has shown us that there are some other quirks that are important. One of the things that we realised we were short on pretty quickly was, for instance, the chemicals needed to keep air conditioning and ventilation units clean. And uh, without that, you can't run hospitals, for mm. instance. Um, so there's lots of those odd items, um, might not be front of mind, but are absolutely vital for us to be able to provide essential services like, for instance, healthcare. Um, is an analysis like this happening yet? I think the conversation is starting. Mm -hmm. And we've had to react to the pandemic. The government's done a great job. Yeah, I agree. And there'll come a time where we can start to think a bit more deeply about these things and move the conversation along. And I think we're just starting to see, uh, you know, green shoots um, after suppressing COVID-19 in Australia. Um, we're probably one of the best democracies in the world for, for doing that. Mm. And now we can start talking about these bigger issues which go to our sovereignty and our strategic resilience. Because that's how we learn the lessons of this time. It's how we um, make the most of the hardship many Australians are experiencing to prevent them suffering in the future. That's right. And we have to do the analysis before we suggest any sort of policy uh, prescriptions because we don't want to rush to failure. We don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. We need to actually understand our vulnerabilities. And the evidence matters. It absolutely matters. Um, Said like a true lawyer. <laughs> Let's talk about something that is um, slightly different. Through the Pacific Step Up, the Morrison government has made a really big effort to um, do a leader's job in the Pacific, to um, make the most of the relationships we have with our near neighbours and um, to fortify those for, for many reasons, right? One, because it's the right thing to do. They're our neighbours and they're, and they're good people and they share... Um, you know, important history with us. I think of, you know, PNG during wartime and, and the things they've done for this country. And, Precisely. And that matters, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's also important from a security perspective for us going into the future. What can Australia do, do you think, to be a good neighbour to those in the Pacific? That's a really uh, interesting question. So we have so much history. Uh, to go back 101 years ago, it was Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister, arguing with Woodrow Wilson about a mandate for Papua New Guinea at the uh, Palace of Versailles during that debate. Um, it was a great exchange. I think uh, Billy Hughes said to Woodrow Wilson, I speak to I speak for 60,000 war dead, who do you speak for? Um, apparently Wilson called him a, a pestiferous varmint afterwards. Um, so even, <laughs> even good friends can disagree. Um, we've been talking about how we interact with our Pacific island neighbours for, for a long time. Um, we have that shared heritage in World War II. And, of course, we have the relationship now. Um, there's got to be a strategic dimension. Um, I think the Australian Defence Force is a natural partner in the Pacific. Yeah. Um, we have some great... I, I did time in the Pacific, for example. Um, we can trade notes on you know, how to do maritime operations, for example. Uh, we can do technology transfer... There's a lot of good legal programs too where Australian judges go into the Pacific and um, spend periods of time sitting as a judge there almost to teach local judges how to do the rule of law well. Uh, we send prosecutors to PNG and the Solomons and the like um, to help their prosecutors That's right. improve all the time. Not suggesting that we're perfect but we can all benefit from sharing that kind of information and... 
um, it brings our people back with a better understanding of our place in that part of the world. That's right. And a really practical example is our army engineers going to Bougainville and disposing of World War II ordnance, mm-hmm. um, which is a problem. There's a lot of it. There was a lot of fighting in World War Two, and yeah. um, making that safer for those people is a really important thing. So there's economic initiatives. Um, I'm not going to try and pluck one from my mind right now. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's lots of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, – I get a lot of good suggestions from constituents, and some of them you can, you know, pick up and roll with straight away. But others – uh, are maybe well intentioned, but reflect um, perhaps not quite enough operational time on the ground. He, he great suggestions like we should be sending medical equipment that we're not using anymore, like MRI machines and yes. things like that. Um, and then you go and talk to people who are on the ground and go, well, they don't actually have the power supply to be able to run something like that in the places that you're talking about. And so um, it is the kind of um, – assistance that requires a meaningful on-the-ground kind of relationship so that you can understand some of those um, parameters that can be limiting in in our ability to share. But even simple things like um, they love rugby league, they love rugby union, um, include them in in Australian cultural activities of that kind. Uh, There's there's a lot that we can do, I think, to be a good friend. Yeah, the cultural uh, symmetry is amazing. I did six weeks for my patrol course when I was in the army in Papua New Guinea and uh, rugby league was a, a definite... It was life. It was, it was <laughs> life. I still remember driving down a dirt road in a truck with all my comrades and there was a bloke walking down the street in a, I think it was a Queensland jersey and he had one of those big hands from, you get at the football, he was just <laughs> yeah, walking yeah. down the street with a... Big foam <laughs> hand. Big foam hand and um, there was great cheers and everything else. Another thing I really admire about Papua New Guinea, for example, is uh, we did patrols and I remember sitting in the rain um, near a village and we could hear them singing on a Sunday yep. uh, as they as, as they worshipped as a village. And I just got this real sense that the community is a big thing there. And, um, you know, we talk about the isolation of modern culture here in the West. I think we can learn a lot from our Pacific neighbours, the way they do family. That's a really good point. Um, they They do family in a big inclusive way they yes. do faith unashamedly yes. and um that's something the comfort they have with that i think is something really beautiful and even that itself reflects the fact that they're from a values tradition that is a good match for for who we are and um while there might be um other nations who are interested in improving their influence in that region um very few of them will have that that cultural and values match That's that we can have. And anything we can do to leverage that, I think, is a good thing. That's right. And the Prime Minister, he's got a, a strong, vibrant faith. And I think that um, particularly equips him to, to build relationships in the Pacific. I think yep. that's, that's a wonderful thing, to have a leader who can reach across uh, you know, the ocean and, and establish a, a rapport quickly on, on the basis of personal values. Yeah, as you know, I'm from Queensland and particularly when you get to North Queensland, there is um, very clearly close ties with a lot of our Pacific neighbours and you've got, um, you know, kids from Pacific Island nations who are sent to boarding school in, mm-hmm. in Cairns and in Townsville and um, you've got people who seize the opportunity to come to Queensland to work. Yes. Um, oftentimes doing jobs that Australians um, should but won't do. Mm-hmm. That's a story for another day. But... Um, they make a really good contribution and they fit in so well. So um, 
I'm intrigued by the the long term potential that comes from things like having more people, say from PNG, come and get educated in Australia because um, that helps them build almost an Australian family while they're here, and they they take that that connection home with them. Precisely, and you know we do this already. So Duntroon mm-hmm. um, and Adfa, we had Papuan, Fijian, uh, Timorese officer cadets come through, and again. Um, great training opportunity, and those relationships are lifelong. And uh, if they stay in their respective defence forces or governments, those points of contact go all the way up to the top. So it's a really good investment for both countries. What do you think the relationship um, will look like 10 years from now if we get this right? I think a, you know, a vibrant... Um, it's a vi- it will be a vibrant relationship economically, uh, politically, but most importantly culturally um, because that's the basis of the other two things. Um, if you can establish a, a peer-to-peer relationship with your neighbours, then um, all the benefits of prosperity and um, relationships and governance uh, flow from that. It's, it's very reassuring to hear you say that because one of the things I really strongly believe is that... Um, particularly on our side of politics, people are really comfortable talking about economics. They're really comfortable talking about prosperity and um, opportunities for people to improve their financial position, whether we're talking about, you know, the, the single mum in the suburbs or whether, they're, whether we're talking about our island neighbours. But we're not always as comfortable talking about culture. Mm-hmm. And if we are only prepared to make ourselves um, economically strong, but we are too timid to confront the need for a healthy culture, then we're only really unlocking half of the economic picture. If you don't, for instance, have um, healthy, strong families, you don't have children that are growing up to be productive members of society. You don't have people who are going to go to work or establish businesses of their own. There are economic consequences for the failure to engage with culture. What do you reckon we can do to help people both in this parliament and those who vote to understand that culture isn't about being socially divisive? Culture is about um, helping us all reach our potential. Yeah, culture is is an enabler. Um, I think of the the late Roger Scruton, Sir Roger Scruton. Isn't he brilliant? May he rest in peace. Uh, His chapter in How to Be a Conservative, where he talks about the truth in capitalism, he deals with the abstraction of uh, free market theory. Um, And he says, uh, you know, a a society where you have a free market and a free political system um, only happens if it's rooted in a culture of freedom. And that's Mm. individuals interacting um, on the basis of trust and accountability. And so his ultimate point, I think, therefore, is that... um, you know, political freedom and economic freedom um, are two, they go side, hand in hand. Two, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And that flows from culture. And the culture is trust and accountability. Doesn't that link neatly to the challenges that have been discussed in, or in our media this week in um, some of our international relationships? Um, when we fail to understand that there is a link between um, a culture of freedom and economic freedom um, for us, but not necessarily everywhere else, Yes. Um, then we can conduct our economic and other relationships 
on the basis of um, a pretty big misunderstanding. That's right. A lawless capitalism is no capitalism at all, in my view. Um, you know, we must have liberty under law, and um, that way your rights are guaranteed, my rights are guaranteed, and we're both accountable if we break the social contract which, which binds us. And the challenge for us is that sometimes we, we perhaps replicate our domestic settings on the global stage, whereas I'm far more of a realist on the global stage. Um, geography, power, human nature, um, are the, they determine global markets as much as anything else. And um, I think in global politics, irony, paradox and dark shadows abound <laughs> and we need to be realistic about that. Yeah. Um, look, I don't, I don't carry any judgment for people who um, might make that assumption that others operate on the same premises that we do. No. Um, but I think there is a growing awareness among the Australian community more generally that um, while we might have um, pretty clear definitions about what constitutes appropriate conduct, um, for instance, in an economic sense, mm. those assumptions don't necessarily apply everywhere. This is really exciting stuff. This is good. We could get into some uh, <laughs> Thomas Sowell, um, a conflict of visions, because, I mean, that's at the heart of the problem, right? Whether yeah. you believe human nature is fixed and um, needs checks and balances and incentives, or you think human nature is perfectible. Um, and I think everyone in the liberal camp, and it's a big camp... It is. Um, I think would believe that, you know, government isn't the answer. Um, human nature is fixed and government exists... Um, to establish order and and you know, ensure your rights and my rights are, are respected and we can get along together. Yeah. I think it also um, operates on the much more realistic assumption that we are all works in progress. None of us are perfect. No. Uh, we not. all have um, a bucket of good and um, a little bit of not so great in there and we are um, all in a process of trying to bring out the good bits and, um, you know, remove as much of the bad bits as we can um, and that we need systems that are going to um, provide opportunities for people to have that life journey in a way that no government can impose. That's right. And I, this comes back to how we started. Um, you and I are here because we see these institutions as live ones. They're imperfect but they're live. Yeah. And they need cultivating. And we need to be involved, whether it's as a grassroots member of the Liberal Party or Labor Party, for that matter. Um, it's a two-party system. We all need to do our bit at working in the garden of democracy. Well, on that um, upbeat note, I um, think we better go back to working in the garden, hey? Sounds good. <laughs> Andrew Hasty, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda.